Almighty Father, as we come now to your word, uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. One of the things you promise is that um, you don't leave us alone. Uh, you, you teach us through your word, and you teach us through your word by, um, by being very present and active in our hearts and in our minds, uh, clarifying who Jesus is, clarifying what it means uh, to trust in him. And so we ask you to do that. Um, as audacious as that may sound, we ask for it boldly, and we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Take a seat. And uh, please turn back to uh, page 11, uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, we're uh, slotting in for this summer uh, into the standard Anglican uh, lectionary readings. The lectionary is just a reading plan that the church gives us, and so we're slotting into that, and that leads us uh, parachuting into the middle of 2 Corinthians for a little part of the summer. Um, I never tire, some of you know this, I never tire of uh, reminding us all of uh, Emmanuel's vision statement. Um, some of you are going to start giggling now, but um, here it is. For those of you who don't know and those who do, uh, Emmanuel Anglican Church exists to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. And uh, think about that last verb, uh, reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. Um, imagine a mirror. Uh, a mirror, we know this, reflects things. And if you look into a mirror directly, uh, all you'll see is yourself, right? However, if you tilt the mirror just a little bit, uh, you won't see yourself at all. You'll see something else. You'll see something kind of over your right or left shoulder, whatever it might be. And when we say that we want to reflect the, the beauty of Jesus Christ, uh, one of the things that that means is that we want to be a mirror, so to speak, so that when the city or people around us, or even people within our own congregation, when the city looks at Emmanuel, they don't see merely their own reflection, uh, nor do they see, ideally, us, primarily, but rather, we want to be tilted in just the right way so that when the city looks at Emmanuel Church, what they see is Jesus. Now, uh, we are parachuting into the middle of uh, 2 Corinthians for the next few weeks. And in our reading, um, we've got the idea of reflection. This is where the idea comes from. Take a look at the, toward the beginning of the reading, verse 18 there. Let me read it. It says this. We all, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, it says, we all with unveiled face beholding, pause, beholding there can be translated reflecting. So let me read it again that way. And we all, with unveiled face, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, that may sound a bit lofty. Vision, visiony kinds of statements very often are lofty. But here's what I want to show you today through the rest of the reading. Emmanuel, we reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ not just through our strengths, abilities, competencies, and gifts. In fact, we do not even primarily reflect Jesus through our strengths, abilities, competencies, and, and gifts. Rather, 
Our strengths that are vested in us very often can become, if we're not careful, an obstacle to reflecting the beauty of Jesus Christ well. According to our reading, we reflect Jesus, both as a a church and as individuals, to a great extent through our weaknesses. What do I mean by weaknesses? I mean all the things that frighten us so much. What are the things that frighten you? Here are some of the things that frighten me. Hardship, failure, limitation, incompetence, disappointment, physical difficulty, anything that makes me feel vulnerable. Most of the time, I spend most of my life desperately trying to get away from any of those things. But in our reading today, what we find out is that all those experiences of weaknesses can become opportunities. And all of those experiences of weaknesses must become opportunities to reflect Jesus well. It's a little bit like this. Weakness in the experience of a Christian can help tilt the mirror just right. So that when other people look at us, what they see is not us, but Jesus Christ. And that's why we exist. So what we need to do is look at this reading, and what we'll find is that for those of us who are Christians, this passage is going to tell us that your experience of weakness and difficulty and vulnerability, it is not futile, it is not pointless, but rather it's part of how Jesus is fulfilling his purpose in your life. And if you're not a Christian, then this reading gives you a wonderful offer. And it's very much the same thing. It means that your experience of weakness, painful as it is, does not have to be meaningless. I mean, we all have to experience weakness, right? We all do. There's no getting away from it. Wouldn't it be great if it was meaningful? All right. Let me, uh, come with me into this reading. Let me explain and hopefully it'll come clear. Take a look at that first reading. Um, As I said, we are parachuting into the middle of a very large letter of the Apostle Paul to this church that was at Corinth in southern Greece. That's why it's called uh, the second letter to the Corinthians. And out of all of the Apostle Paul's letters, this letter, uh, 2 Corinthians, um, is where Paul gets most transparent about his personal experience of difficulty and hardship and sadness and weakness and vulnerability. Just for instance, um, this isn't in our reading, but at the very beginning of Paul's letter, he writes this. Just listen. Dear Corinthians, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. It's remarkable, isn't it? Do you ever think of the Apostle Paul saying, I feel like I'm I'm under a death sentence? It's part of the gift of this letter is we get to see Paul at his rawest, his, his weakest is most vulnerable. And yet, despite the fact that he's in such a vulnerable situation, he is full of hope and courage and joy. So look at the um, beginning of the second paragraph of our reading. He says this, Therefore, having this ministry, which he's just told us is extraordinarily difficult, having this ministry by the mercy of God, nevertheless, we do not lose heart, he says. 
Or glance down now to verse 7, the third full paragraph. Paul, talking about his experience of frailty, says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. But why? Keep reading. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's going to be where we camp most of our time. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Now, here's my question. How is it that the Apostle Paul can experience so much difficulty and nevertheless experience it, nevertheless with hope and courage and resilience, and not only that, but how can it actually uh, help tilt the mirror in Paul's life so that he can reflect Jesus more accurately, clearly, and effectively? How does that happen? All right. Let me back up, fill in a little bit of the story of uh, Paul's life, and then we'll come back to the text, okay? Um, before the Apostle Paul was a Christian, he was a Pharisee. We, uh, in the gospel reading, there's a little bit about Pharisees. We talked about Pharisees last week. One of the things you need to know about Pharisees is that they were uh, religious regulationists. Uh, and boiling down their views to an absolutely overly simplistic way, um, it kind of went like this. They, they had rules and regulations, and the deal was you need to comply with them, and if the, to the extent that you comply with them, things will go well with you. That's why they were so stressed out at how Jesus' disciples dealt with the Sabbath. Now, that's an overly simplistic, reductionistic summary of the Pharisees, I know. But it's enough to say this. In that system in which Paul was uh, cultivated and grew up, the whole system rests on his strength and his weakness um, as a performer of religion, right? So um, it's kind of like, if it's, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Somebody told me that when I was a kid. Anybody tell you that as a kid? Or it, it was too corny. It, it, it went out. Okay, that's fine. Um, <laughs> But notice, notice, in that system, in that, you know, if it's going to be, it's up to me, it's at least memorable. In that system, uh, my strengths are my allies, and my weaknesses are my enemies. Isn't that right? Now, none of us here are Pharisees, I don't think, but all of us are performers. Just think about it. When, when you went to school, what did you learn? You learned many things. But one of the main things you learned is to be a performer. Perform! Come on. Every single thing you ever did in school told you that um, your strengths will save you, your weaknesses will destroy you. Perform! Did great on that test. Get ready for the next one. And then you got out of school and, and you entered your career. And what did you learn in your career? Well, you learned many things, many skills. It's great. But mostly, perform. Perform. You better be competent because there's other people that can do the job otherwise. Curate your competencies and cover your weaknesses. Curate your competencies. Cover your weaknesses. Now, am I wrong about that? And in one sense, I can imagine somebody saying, come on, well, that's just the way the world works. That's just practical. That's just the way it's got to be. Which, yeah, I know, there's, there's truth in that. But there's also a sting in the tail. What's the sting in the tail? Well, go back to Paul. 
Because the whole system of curating your competencies, covering your uh, weakness, your strengths are your allies, your weakness is your enemy, that whole system turned Paul into a blind bully. What do I mean by that? Well, he was blind, particularly, uh, to who God really was, which was ironic because his whole system was about religion. But nevertheless, when Paul first heard about Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus had already uh, performed his ministry. He had died. He had risen again. He had ascended. But when, Jesus, when Paul heard about Jesus, the whole message of Jesus uh, w- was just repulsive to him. Repulsive. It stood against everything that Paul stood for. Why? Because Jesus had died. Dead messiahs are useless. They're weak. That's not what God's like. God's strong, man, in Paul's mind. Of course, that's true, in a way. But the problem was, Paul spent all this time curating his own competencies and covering his weakness, that when he saw uh, Jesus Christ, he was, just, he was blind to Christ's beauty. And that's a terrible danger. It's a terrible danger for all of us. Paul mentions it in our reading in verse 4. In this case, Paul's talking about somebody else, but it describes his own experience before he was a Christian. It says this, In the case of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, uh, when Paul talks about the God of this age, he means the devil, which I know brings up all kinds of questions. We can talk about those later. Please do. But one of the ways, according to Paul, that the devil can blind us, there's lots of different ways, but one of it, one of the ways, is by captivating us with our own strength and abilities so that either we can't see that we need Jesus or even if we do think we need something, we look at Jesus and we say, it's definitely not that. I just need to up my game on strength. Ends up, Paul was deeply blind. But not only was Paul blind, he was also profoundly a bully. So Paul arrested Christians, he persecuted Christians, he prosecuted them legally, and he helped in their executions. He was a bully to the extreme. But the thing is, his bullying grew out of his whole way of approaching life, curating competencies and covering weakness. Why? Because when you love more than anything else your strengths, if all your trust is based on your competencies and abilities and strengths, and gifts, then, and if you hate your weakness, then when you see strength in other people, it'll be a threat because you'll always be about competition. And on the other hand, when you see weakness in somebody else, it'll it'll be an opportunity. Because what you can do is if you're always playing the game and if you're always resting on your own strength and if you're always afraid of your own weaknesses, then when you see a weakness in somebody else, you can exploit it. You can be a bully. And no one wants to be like that, but the problem is if we are addicted to our strength, then that is very often where it leads us. Of course, we never think that we're like that. Bullies never think they are. Let me ask you a couple questions. How do you know if you're addicted to your own strengths? Well, think about how you relate to other people's strengths and to other people's weakness. When you see somebody else that's very, very strong, maybe particularly where you're not, 
do you immediately go to envy? Do you immediately go to, mm, I wish I had that. If only I had that. Wow, how do I get that? Urgh. You don't see the person, but you see the strength that you want. That can be a sign that you're really resting on your own capacities and strength. On the other hand, what do you do when you see weakness in somebody else? Do you immediately go to criticism? <laughs> Look at them. They're terrible at that. Why do you do that? Well, it could be that you hate your weakness in yourself, and therefore, when you see it in somebody else, it allows you to, to reinforce feeling well about the fact that in that area, you're better. These can just be warning signs. How are you doing with these things? Now, go back to Paul's life because it changed for him. And if you look at that middle paragraph in our reading, he is living in an entirely different way. So what happened? Well, it all changed for him in an instant. You may know the story of Paul on the Damascus Road. Uh, Paul was traveling from Jerusalem up to Damascus. He was going there to... Uh, throw his weight around on some Christians, but on the way, he met Jesus. Jesus had already ministered, died, risen, ascended, but nevertheless, Paul met Jesus. And do you know what Jesus said? Do you remember this? If you've heard the story before? He used Paul's different name. He said, Saul, Saul, but he met Paul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, do you notice, he, he doesn't say, Paul, Paul, why are you bullying my people? No, he says, why are you bullying me? Now, that means many different things, but it includes that Jesus is saying, I am the God who is with my people, very particularly in their weakness. So if my people are suffering, I'm there with them, and I take it personally he says to Paul. Now, that has all kinds of implications, and it's a theme that runs right through the Bible. If you go to the Old Testament, you think about the story of the Exodus and any number of other stories. God is closest to his people, not primarily when they're so strong and they've got everything sorted and they are just killing it. Rather, he is with them when they're at their worst and their weakest and their lowest. God saves slaves, not superpowers. And that gets completely clear when God unveils himself in Jesus Christ. I say unveils because uh, in verse 6, Paul says that Jesus is the image of God, which is to say, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus Christ. And when God made himself visible and seeable and clear, he made himself visible, you know this, not by becoming Caesar. He could have. Not by becoming president not by becoming a business executive or a university professor or any of the other careers that your parent taught you to pursue. Rather, he became a, rep a political refugee whose greatest success was in his death. Put differently, God showed his beauty not by curating his strength. See how strong I am? Could have. Wouldn't have been wrong, but no, rather he became weak. He became a servant, and he died for those who hated him. And so here's Paul meeting that God in the face of Jesus Christ, and when that happened, everything changed for him because verse 6 happened to him right in the middle. Verse 6 in the bottom of the second paragraph says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness 
has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, in that moment, and ever since then, Paul says, I have seen the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and I have seen God embrace weakness, and that's where his beauty lies. He, he saw the beauty not of curated strength, but the beauty of sacrificial love. And that actually... God's strength was most powerfully presented in that. And it went beyond that because in that moment and in the next few days, he saw that Jesus poured out that sacrificial love, particularly to Paul, starting with pouring that sacrificial love into his heart by grace, forgiving, pardoning, uh, giving amnesty to all of Paul's bullying and selfish sin. It didn't stop there either, because as that happened, as Paul was utterly pardoned, Jesus also freed him from his addiction to his own strength. How'd that happen? How did Jesus liberate Paul from his addiction to his own strength? Well, it's the same way that happens for you and me. It's the only way it happens. What happened was, Paul could see that if God showed his beauty through Jesus' death, and if God can show his power in particular through self-sacrificial weakness, and if Jesus pardoned Paul, not because Paul did good things, but because Jesus' death accomplished so much, then Paul could be free. He didn't have to trust his strength anymore, and he didn't have to fear his weakness anymore. He no longer had to be his own hero. Jesus could be his hero now. And that meant that Paul, for the first time in his life, could look away from himself. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could have the liberty of looking away from yourself? How would you be different? I'd be so different. And Paul was different because when he rested on his own competencies and strength, he, he ended up a bully. But when he's resting on Jesus, then he becomes a servant. Look at verse 5. Look how selfless verse 5 is. For what we proclaim is... Not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. See where he's pointing? The mirror has been tilted just the right way. With ourselves, this is Paul's new identity, as your servants for Jesus Christ's sake. So do you see how Paul reflects Jesus? He used to be blind to Jesus, but now he's pointing people to Jesus. He used to be a bully, but now he serves others just like Jesus has served him. And that wasn't easy in this situation because the Corinthian church had kind of been, been really mean to Paul, actually. This is a painful letter. Paul had been hurt by these people. He had, he, he had brought them to know Christ, and then while he was away, they had done a number of things that profoundly hurt Paul, but Paul responds freely, not by defending himself, not by trying to bully them. Both of those things would have been natural for him to try to do, but rather, Paul serves them. And the primary way Paul serves them is he holds up Jesus Christ, and he says, I'm going to describe Jesus to you just as clearly as I can as he presents himself in Scripture. Look at verse 1, beginning of the second full paragraph. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. But if you're relying on your own strength, you'll love underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, because we don't need to. It's okay to be weak. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
You see how he's no longer trying to curate his own strength and impress other people. If he's curating anything, he is simply curating the beauty of Christ. Because Jesus is his joy. Now, Jim, what does that have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. Because this has to be our motive. Um, we are, Emmanuel, one of the things that's fun here is that we're full of competent people. You guys are very competent. You do things very well. Um, that's a danger. It's a threat. Because if we're captivated by our own abilities, we will be useless to the mission of Jesus Christ. But if Jesus meets us in our weakness... If Jesus becomes more compelling to us than our own capacities and abilities, then we'll be free from the anxiety that eats us and we'll be able to clearly describe Jesus' beauty because we'll see it ourselves. So how's that going for you? You know, you can only serve well if you're willing to be weak. We can't really ever serve others if you're really just serving your own strength. And what happened is Paul reflected Jesus' beauty, first, by emulating Jesus in sacrificial service, secondly, by describing uh, Jesus and forgetting himself, but then lastly, and this is hard, he reflected Jesus by walking with him through difficulty. Look at verse 7. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Jars are fragile, right? They break easily. Um, China breaks super easy. It's, it's why we don't have any left in our home. Um, <laughs> but Paul says, we're, we're breakable, but, but we've got this great treasure in us. And, and just, Paul says, just like God showed his beauty through the death of Jesus Christ, so Jesus shows his beauty through the weakness of the church. And so the jarness, the, the fragility of our lives is actually part of what Jesus will use to display his beauty. It means that God has a plan not just for your gift and your abilities and your competencies and your amazingness, but he also has a plan, crucially, for your weakness, for your frailty, for your discouragements, for your frustrations, and for your tears and if the purpose of your life is to reflect Jesus' beauty, and if Jesus' beauty is displayed in his care for you when you are at your weakest, then it means that your present experience of weakness is not a distraction, and your present weakness is not a detour. It's not like God's defaulted on his promises to you. Rather, in your weakness, God is gathering up your experience into his ultimate purpose so that he is tilting you in the right direction so that when other people look at you, they're not so overblown by your strengths, but they are overblown by your Lord. And I can imagine somebody coming back and saying, Jim, how dare you say that? Because you don't know my pain. Don't cheapen it. Don't tell me that there's a purpose. To which I respond, you're absolutely right. I don't know your pain. And if, I, if anything I say cheapens it, then please delete that because I have no right to do that and that would be an awful offense against you. I don't know what you're going through. And I don't know what the weakness is that you're facing. But Jesus knows what you're going through. And he's walked the path before you. 
And he suffered too much to ever cheapen your pain. And he also knows how to lead you through the cross, through the tomb, and out into the resurrection. And I don't know anyone else that does. And I don't know any other place to give you hope. And I can't tell you exactly how that plays out, but I can tell you this, that it will be in that story where you will most fully see the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Through that process, God will take you and he will tilt you as a mirror so that when other people look at you, they will not see you, but they will see Jesus Christ. And in that day, and it's starting now, receive it by faith. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power is from God and not from us. Amen.